1: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. Our health system is crippled by a cyber attack in the middle of a pandemic. Who are the cyber criminals and what lessons can we learn? We'll have the latest live from the Department of Health and debate and analysis here in studio. Our shops are open again, but are the shoppers coming back in big numbers and getting back to work safely after lockdown? Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. start tonight with that major security breach at the HSE which has left parts of the health service struggling. Our news correspondent Sarah King is at the Department of Health. Sarah can you bring us the very latest tonight on this cyber attack?
0: Yes, good evening, Claire. So, the H.C. Chief Clinical Officer, uh, Dr. Colin Henry, describing the situation as grim overall just in the last couple of hours. They're now four days in since this ransomware attack took hold of the HSC's IT systems nationwide. So, earlier today, Claire, the HSC Chief Executive, Paul Reid, uh, was in a meeting. He was briefing government ministers, including the the-shuk the Thaunuste, Eamon Ryan, uh, the Health Minister, and the Justice Minister, give it, bringing them up to speed on exactly what is happening. Uh, now, after that meeting, the government released a statement in which they said, uh, these ransomware attacks are despicable crimes, most especially when they target critical health infrastructure and sensitive patient data. They go on to say the significant disruption to the health service is to be condemned, especially um, at this time. And they talk about the fact that the attack on Ireland's healthcare system and its patients was carried out by an international cybercrime gang. They say it is aimed at nothing other than extorting money and those who carried it out have no concern for the severe impact on patients needing care. And that is the reality, Claire. Uh, on the front line across the country for both the patients and for the staff. These are uh, frontline workers, as we well know, who've worked through the pandemic for more than a year now, finding themselves reduced back to pen and paper clear, uh, struggling to deal with this, the fallout from this. The HSE confirming this evening that in terms of the repairs, this is going to be weeks rather than days. And the
1: fallout too, huge for patients right across the country, Zara.
0: Yeah that's right Claire and as you mentioned there it's really difficult for the frontline workers and for the patients. Uh, This afternoon we were speaking to some of those uh, frontline workers and some families as well. For example, uh, one lady I spoke to today has an 11 month old baby uh, who was due to have a hospital appointment, one they had been uh, waiting for, hoping to get for several months since the baby was born. That appointment had to be obviously cancelled this morning. Uh, That lady having to ring the clinic herself because of course uh, the clerical staff don't have access to patients' phone numbers. So simple things like that Claire, they can't phone the patients to tell them exactly uh, what is happening now the lady we spoke to today uh, obviously disappointed and upset that her baby won't have that appointment but hugely empathetic for the clerical staff saying of course it's not their fault and she felt sorry for them but of course she wants to make sure that her baby gets that appointment uh, as quickly as possible likewise doctors and nurses and frontline workers healthcare assistants uh, telling us that they've had to cancel appointments Uh, they're literally ferrying bits of paper around the hospital uh, really sort of trying to manage with very little resources Uh, Dr. Colin Henry saying to us this evening Evening, though there is no shortage of human capacity and he praised those frontline workers who are working in those difficult conditions so saying to people if you are unwell and you need to present at an emergency department the care is there absolutely attend that emergency department uh, and seek that support just in the last couple of moments uh, the health minister Stephen Donnelly taking to Twitter clear, uh, talking about the fact that hundreds of people are working flat out in response to this cyber attack and he talks about that priorities include uh, radiation oncology diagnostic lab services and patient admin systems he says while it might take weeks to get all the systems back steady progress is being made starting with services for the most urgent patients you can see there that work very much ongoing this evening
1: Mm, but action needs to be taken and it needs to be taken quickly in terms of finding a fix to this
0: yeah, that's right, Claire. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, everyone who's possibly uh, capable of working on this is working on this. And that's what the government are saying tonight in that statement. Uh, they're talking about the fact that there are hundreds of people deployed to tackle this attack in accordance with the predetermined plan for such cyber attacks. The government adding that the necessary detailed technical work is continuing as a priority to secure and restore the HSE's uh, IT infrastructure. But Paul Reid telling Virgin Media uh, earlier this evening just about that, saying that um, they're working at the moment on getting those voluntary hospitals, clear up and running. So uh, Things like uh, James and Vincent's and the matter. So uh, there's tests on going through tonight and into tomorrow to try and see if they can get those uh, back up on stream. But it is going to be a massive challenge.
1: OK, Zara King at the Department of Health, thank you for that update tonight. Well, I'm joined now by Government TD Neil Richmond of Fine Gael and Opposition TD Reid Smith of People Before Profit. Uh, Neil Richmond, we heard from Zara there on the extent, the fallout, the crisis that is really unfolding around this right in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, how worried are government about how large scale and damaging this could be?
2: Well, this is a, a unique event. Um, unfortunately, attempts to hack into our systems are regular happens to government departments, it happens to large multinationals. This is modern cyber security, modern criminal um, and modern, modern cyber terrorism. Let's be quite frank what's going on here. But what we do have a system Is we do have a plan for this eventuality. So it moves a four stage com- containment, communication, assessment and recovery. And it's now in the assessment stage working into the recovery. As Zara said, there's a lot of essential services still going ahead. Our HSE staff are being extremely um, durable in terms of working around it. I- i read last night anthony o'connor who's a regular on this show who was able to do his procedures reverting back it's a very serious matter it's one that needs the full attention of the state and as zara said there's hundreds of people from angardashia connor the national cyber council the defense forces as well as outside experts working not just to find the source of this but to get the recovery in.
1: What about when we're hearing about those really basic fundamental problems that people in hospitals can't contact patients? They simply don't have the information to hand because of their system crash.
2: And this is what this is. It's a a shutdown of the system. And let's be under no delusion. This is attack on every single Irish citizen. It isn't some bumbling bureaucracy mess up. This is a very dangerous criminal gang who seek to prey on the most vulnerable in our society for financial gain through cryptocurrency. But what we do have is a system in the places Dr. Henry has gone through where they can get things back up as quickly as possible and as the vast majority of essential services are going ahead and steadily we'll see all those systems going back on. But the information Mm. is there contained and it has to be remembered that there was another attempt at the Department of Health that was unsuccessful. So we do have to keep working and giving them the space and time to recover this, but it couldn't have come at a worse time.
1: And you've said that that attempts to hack into the system have been regular. There's something that the government are well aware of, and this issue has been well flagged, were the government not prepared for the potential for such an attack to actually happen. So the the threat of cyber risk has been there and well flagged by risk assessment reports for years now
2: and it's a global phenomenon. We're not the first country to fall victim to this attack. We've repelled many, many attacks throughout it, but the attacks get more and more mm. sophisticated and it needs more and more cooperation between EU member states to target these gangs and put in place the quickest possible recovery. That's why this is part of the review and the Commission of Defence. That's why the National Cyber Security Council was set up and why the funding was in place, but why really? And it doesn't matter if it's government department, companies, individuals, This is the great security threat that everyone needs to be aware of and buying into. But we did know our systems were vulnerable. Every system is vulnerable. These people are criminal masterminds. Their expertise, um, Mm -hmm. reading into the reports about how they're operating and all the different silos Mm -hmm. and how there is, I hate to say, state compliance from other parts. They're happening around the world. They're having successful and unsuccessful. But for this one attack, there has been hundreds repelled by a very dedicated team of public servants.
1: But this attack landed and the impact has been devastating. Breed Smith, um, we heard Neil Richmond there saying that, you know, yes, every system is vulnerable and systems are vulnerable, but this is how we now go in place to fix it and that the systems are in place to do that.
3: Well, first of all, there's a huge level of violence. Literally violence has been visited upon um, members of the public and the hospitals. And uh, it's extremely serious. And I really, my heart goes out to the stress that the frontline workers are, are meeting and families and patients, the stress and the pain that they're, they're meeting because of this. Um, but look, I think Neil is right. There's, there's criminals out there who are well able to hack uh, all sorts of systems. And we live in a highly digital, digitalized and connected world. But it is also a fact that we were warned as early back as last December that um, by Microsoft that the system was outdated and not protected enough in the HSE and that it needed to be upgraded. And when I heard about this first, I thought immediately, I wonder, was the HSE under-resourcing its technological system, like it under-resources public health doctors, like it under-resources public uh, beds, like it under-resources all of the public health? And COVID showed us, the and holes that appeared in our public health system when we ran into a crisis. And now we know that they actually did under-resource the HSE's uh, cyber security system. So that's where the problem lies. And I'm not saying that to be just oppositional. I'm saying that you have to acknowledge that there was a problem and now people are working very very hard to deal with it and to get us back to okay. somewhere safe and that's really important and we have to thank them for that but there was a problem and there was a warning that it was under-resourced and we we live we pride ourselves on being at the heart of cybersecurity. we've got the 50 biggest cybersecurity companies located here in ireland we're the heart of data centers of the planet and we don't get it right, right.
1: okay i want to bring adrian weckler in here adrian Uh, Tell us a bit about this Russian-based cyber gang and and how they managed to do this and bring down the system so efficiently.
4: They're a professional gang, Claire, and this is what they do. Um, They look for vulnerabilities in big organisations, companies, semi-states, whatever lands really. Then they try and get in and then they try and make their money via ransomware. They got lucky with the HSE for a couple of reasons. First of all, it's a kind of a hodgepodge patchwork of different IT systems over 20, 30 years. The IT budget there is pretty modest, relatively speaking. Put that in the context of a national um, cybersecurity infrastructure budget, which is very, very slim. You talk to any IT security professional in Ireland, they're kind of dismayed. About the the lack of resources that there are for when something like this hits, and you've got a bit of a perfect storm. Really, that particular gang that's spreading this Conti uh, ransomware—they um, they they, they kind of hit it lucky with the uh, HSE.
1: Tell us uh, about the extent of the attack because we're hearing about patient information, sensitive patient information, financial records. All of this has been mined, and they had two weeks. To mine it. Have they got a huge amount of material now and what are they going to do with it?
4: Well most government uh, authorities including junior minister are suggesting that they probably do have access to some sensitive medical data and administrative account um, information. If they do there's no question that they will follow through on their threat to dump that or share it on the dark web. Because if they didn't, then nobody else would take them seriously. That's what they've done in other situations against other hospitals uh, in recent months. So um, that's the prospect that is facing um, people in terms of their their, uh, personal data, their their private uh, medical information. And in some cases, uh, their account uh, information. So um, it's pretty serious, and but we don't yet know the extent of exactly how much they've got. So, again, as I say, because the HSE is trying to work through so many different ICs, uh, IT systems, two thousand okay. patient-facing system, eighty thousand devices.
1: Okay, uh, Neil Richmond, we heard from Adrian there, two thousand systems. I mean, it's huge, it's vast, and what. because of the legacy systems that are in place, this has left a huge vulnerability. Should money not have been invested, we talked about resourcing it. We heard earlier from the former head of the HSE that the money spent on the IT team for the HSE is a quarter what it is in other um, comparable states. And we know that the particular National Cyber Security Centre budget was at 1.7 million euro. Now it's gone up to 5 million. But we know there's actually no one in charge of that centre.
2: Well, it's five million with a team of 25 people, and there is people in charge. The principal officer hasn't been appointed yet, but this is yeah. beyond simply just the HSE and the National Cyber Council. This year alone, Helen McEntee gave approval for 22 million in extra resources for Angarda Shea corner for their ICT. And this is all about, because Ireland is a small country, it's also about our European cooperation and the new European budget to ensure that we have, when we talk about security and defence, it's not soldiers going to <laughs> invade Syria, it is the investment in this system and these resources and this research this is an extremely serious sophisticated attack mm. and yes we need to keep up the resources and make sure that we have the talent more resources there. do
1: you think more money needs to go in than 5 million well, it's Euro. not just
2: money it's talent it's expertise well, it's retaining yes, and, experts and, 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 that and it's would also be constantly modernising the, the systems and the thing is the main thing is ensuring it's a joined up system with a central lead as we've seen in the space of four days hundreds of people have been mobilised working 24 7 around oh. the clock as Adrian said this is a criminal gang criminal terrorists who've been successful around the world. We have to learn from this experience. To say that we were well-warned and it was inevitable, I think, is false. It's an extremely unfortunate thing, but it's certainly something that our experts well, are dealing with very well. the government
1: has been warned about this for and years the government in has risk and There risk assessment has been investments,
2: But we also see constantly people opposing being, money being properly spent on security, defence and intelligence.
1: OK, uh, Adrian, I want to bring you in there again. In terms of other systems, this is the Department of Health, the HSE, that was targeted. Uh, Would there be a fear that the public systems in general are open and very vulnerable right now?
4: Yes, there is that fear, quite simply. Um, I mean, Ireland is, in one sense, at a bit of a disadvantage historically because we're not a military nation, really. And part of that mindset has been um, not really to take... um, the defense of the country in, in many ways as seriously or as high up the priority list in terms of budgetary uh, priorities as con- other countries around Europe. And this is kind of related to that. One of the reasons we don't have significant cybersecurity um, defenses uh, in this country compared to countries like the UK and France and, and even smaller countries like Estonia in, in Eastern Europe is because we don't have that history of um i suppose of being a military nation but you're absolutely right there is going to be a fear now that um other major public entities and organizations in ireland may be vulnerable
1: okay um it's nice to be right just on the point of that and the vulnerabilities that are there now and the fact that this crisis and this problem could roll on for weeks, if not months, in terms of getting the system back up and running now. The question of the ransom comes into it. What would your take be on how we deal now with the hackers, negotiating with them or not, Breed?
3: they want, the, they want us to pay a ransom so that the data isn't sold on. But there's no guarantee that you pay them ransom, they don't sell it on, into, in, you know, into the dark web. So I, I don't agree that we should pay a ransom. I think we should do everything to protect ourselves. But I think we should also acknowledge that we didn't do everything to protect ourselves. And I'm not sure if it's just because we have uh, no tradition of militarism in this country. We have, as I said, we are the centre of high-tech data technology of the globe. All of the big companies are headquartered here. We've got huge amount of expertise in this country, not necessarily working for the state, probably working for private enterprise. But we need to change that, mm. and we need to take this really seriously. Well, Breed, how in many the way times that, in, have you spoken out against forward.
2: European investment in security and defence?
3: I have not spoken against no, you have, European my very first in debate defense. in the Dole, followed
2: yeah. you saying the militarisation of the EU is wrong, and we should not be giving two to three well, percent. What do you the mean the very and first budget? debate in the Dole? I had that I contributed to the door. Right. Statements in Europe I didn't Council, contribute and I, fo- it. I followed you in the door chamber as my first debate and you said we should not be approving a European budget that increases investment and security and defence. This is what M- this is. Neil, don't
3: misquote me. What we were against was increasing spending on arms, bombs and military equipment. Security and
2: defence. I was in the chamber.
3: We were against PESCO. We were against putting a budget into buying more arms, more equipment and donating a chunk of our budget to PESCO. Can't the
2: two be Why does the
1: have to be linked
3: up so defence and security
2: these are international cyber terrorists okay. this is this, no different than someone putting this is a no deflection it's not it's true, Bree, from because under-resourcing, because you're under-resourcing
3: trying to, the health services security it's system it's a better realistic a approach deflection. as Adrian said
2: to our defence and our security our defence and our security we a small open country is tied to our membership of the European Union and you can't all say it's all about in, under-resourcing if you the don't d- acknowledge our cooperation to Neil, with countries the like you're point to, with cooperation like countries the like Estonia could play a very it was about the European
1: I just want to stick with the issue that's yes, at exactly. hand here this because there are people up and down the country really worried now about what's going to happen, their appointments. Uh, we, we see people are on waiting lists, we see cancer services affected by that. Uh, let's talk about the money solely that needs to be invested now, the fix that needs to be, that, that you need to come to and how quickly that can be achieved.
2: Well, the fix is ongoing. This is what the teams are working through. And you move from the, re- the assessment to the recovery stage and making sure that that is not only all the data is recovered, of course, I fully agree to Breed, no ransom should be paid because that just opens the gate. It's making sure that it is secure going forward. And every support needs to be given to the HSE and indeed the national and European security effort. It's time we use this as a wake up and realise we have very real responsibilities to our citizen security.
1: Okay, Adrian, I just want to bring you in on the issue of the ransom because some people might wonder, well, look, if we're in this situation and we don't know if we're going to get anything back and it could take a a long uh, period of time to come to a resolution, is there any case to be made for talking to these cyber gangs about this and discussing the idea of a ransom?
0: This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony.
4: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss. That's what a lot of businesses do. Typically, one in four ransomware demands are paid by businesses because they make exactly that calculation that it's going to cost them a lot of time and money and effort, maybe more than the ransom is worth. And that's a calculation that the ransomware gangs actually build into it. It's not helped, by the way, that uh, that insurance companies, generally speaking. Uh, back up or or pay those ransoms as well. In the case of a sovereign state uh, like Ireland, the government it's a it, it's a different proposition. It's ve- much more difficult to argue to pay that ransom for two reasons. First of all, you are actually funding crime. If we pay the ransom, whatever it is twenty million or ten million or five million, um, why wouldn't another ransomware gang uh, come back? And uh, and and I mean, so so it's an ethical uh, question as well as a procedural question. Also, even if you pay the ransom you may not actually get quick access to the data. We saw that last week in the Colonial Pipeline ransomware tech in the US, uh, where they did pay a ransom of $5 million, but the decryption key they got to unlock the data was so slow and so ineffectual, they ended up having to reboot from their own backups uh, 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 an awful lot of the the data anyway. So it's not always uh, the best uh, situation.
1: And there is no quick fix solution. Adrian Weckler, thank you for joining us tonight. Now, coming up, uh, my thanks to Breed Smith and Adrian Weckler and Neil Richmond is staying with us because coming up, retail therapy as the shops reopen again. What next for the future of retail in a change shopping landscape? Welcome back. Neil Richmond is still with us and Ibex Danny McCoy has joined us in studio. Danny McCoy, um, a big day for retail and a welcome one.
5: Yeah, certainly, Claire. It's great to see the momentum back. Um, you know, The economy's done very well, really surprisingly well over the last year, but certain sectors haven't been suppressed for so long, um, particularly ones with high employment. It's great to see the individuals back. You can see the relief on the people who are supplying it, never mind the the customers were back. So it is a good day.
1: Okay. what about uh, retailers getting back on their feet now? Are they facing staff shortages, do you think?
5: I think hospitality will probably find it harder. At the moment, the retail are certainly struggling as well, and we see there's a lot of vacancies out there. Um, Part of this is the pressure of people may have found alternative um, employment because right through the crisis we've seen you know, a lot of sectors have been hiring. Um, there's been a lot of displacement of activity, different channels in which to get it out. Um, and also, you know, the pub payment will be a bit of a drag on the labour market. It's going to be hard for people to make that decision to come off it. Perhaps, you know, precariousness in terms of wondering will we need to be shut down again. So I think that small, gradual build-up has been important. Uh, you know, not to rush the fences on these things, but to have a clear, steady Guide to all people coming back, and I'm sure a later on we'll talk about the office as well. Uh, the pub payment has been hugely—I mean, it's been necessary for so
1: many workers up and down the country. But your organisation and you think that now it's a—it's a—it's a disincentive to retailers and to uh, business owners. In hiring staff
5: potentially I mean not it's not a widespread issue but at the margins there, there is um, particularly coming in the hospitality as they prepare for June we'll find it difficult particularly with seasonal work because there's uncertainty about how much demand will be out there I personally think it will be very strong demand but you know after a year people's confidence is down about you know will they be able to keep the staff on for the remainder of the year if there's seasonal work so there will be a bit of coordination problem and I think there needs to be some overlap between the employers and the employees. What do you think Even needs to be done? Well, I think during the month of June, I think there needs to be some kind of phasing down in the PUP payments um, to allow people. In
1: the people. month of June, so that's in just a couple of weeks Well, I think there.
5: hospitality is going to be one of the biggest issues and, and, and any of the conversations I'm having, it's in the okay. hospitality sector that they're most concerned about the PUP
2: aspect.
1: Uh, Neil Richmond, month of June, starting to remove the PUP payment. What do you think of that?
2: But I think what the government has been quite clear is that we can't have a cliff edge and mm. we are still a long way from having both our economy and society fully reopened. Today is a great step. Um, a lot of relief for a lot of employers, a lot of employees and a lot of people who have needed to get out and, and um, patronise their local uh, retail outlets. But we're still a long way off. Yes, hospitality will open on an outdoor basis next month. but. We still have the live events industry. It's a long way since they've been closed. They've been the hardest hit. And to have a winding down when still people can't work, to have that brutal cut off, it's something that is very difficult. The government are committed to maintaining sports for employers. This week was a double week for employers to get the sports and to make sure that we have, again, Certain sectors of the economy have done very well over the last year, but to make sure that that's channeled into the widest part of the economy, and crucially, society as well. There's no quick fix to this, and we still have to be very aware that around the world the virus still rages, Vaccine and public health is priority. We have to be very careful still.
1: Do you think part of the problem in trying to recruit staff is that uncertainty? And people, as you've said there, Danny, not sure whether if they go back to a job that they'll be able to stay in that job without seeing closures again. Isn't that part of the problem?
2: Well, that's a worry for every part of the economy and we saw in previous lifting when construction came back you know initially um on ascent on housing and then into wider we did see an initial struggle to get staff some had moved abroad some had diversified into other areas but steadily we're starting to pe- see people come into the sector there's no easy way to reopen an economy after a global pandemic the likes of which we haven't seen for a century we've seen what the us and the uk have done we can follow parts of that but parts of that necessarily hasn't gone exactly as we'd like but we have to be cautious and it's understandable people are a bit concerned but certainly the more people that are vaccinated every day the more this is sustainable
1: okay uh retail reopened today um a welcome move and something that uh, plenty of people, retailers and shoppers alike will be happy about. But isn't there a huge challenge ahead now in in, in keeping the business? There may be a big boost now. There may be uh, people who are out and want to spend big, maybe in the next couple of weeks, uh, but they may not do it after that.
2: Yeah, and I spoke to the barber last week and she said, right, clearly, there's only so many haircuts you can give out and then you get back to normal. That sort of, you know, build up will be released at some stage but that's why the government is going to be ambitious throughout not just the summer but into the autumn into the bud into the budget to make sure we have a sustainable recovery for the entire economy that requires large-scale investment it requires support but it also needs the encouragement to those that have built up capital the parts of the economy that have been successful to get out and if possible to spend and spend local
1: Okay, well, let's get the perspective of retailers now. Just before we came in air, I spoke to Don Nugent from Dundrum Town Centre about how today's reopenings had gone.
6: Um, yeah, hi, Claire, Thank you for having me on. Very good, um, very steady, busy day, uh, very controlled, people were very measured. Um, high level, thankfully, of um, compliance in terms of facial covering, social distancing, and so on. It was great to see people out. It's been a long, long uh, haul, this particular lockdown, 136 days. is a long time for um, the retail industry. So thankfully, we got all of our stores open today. Um, so that was very good news.
1: What was footfall like? Were you expecting big crowds and did you get them?
6: Well, to be honest, We weren't. We were actually uh, forecasting a drop on 2019 numbers, which is obviously the last time we had any kind of normality. But we actually saw a 20% increase on the 2019 equivalent day. But because we were open till 9, it was well spread out during the course of the day. We had um, a lot of interaction with um, uh, customers during the course of the day. A lot of some people came in early to get out early, others came uh, when the kids were dropped off to school. And a, quite a busy evening, um, probably slightly younger uh, age cohort in the evening, but um, it was very good to see people in. And lots of excitement, like people are in really good mood. I think there's a lot more confidence out there now because the uh, vaccine rollout is paying its part in giving people a little more assurance. And also the fact that we've all become a little more used to um, this way of having to wear masks and so on. So um, we, it was very good to see that people were out, they were excited, the retailers were excited. What happened last week with the uh, shopping by appointment certainly helped to take a little bit of pressure off, and we had 25 of our retailers engaged in that process. That was also very successful and uh, well worthwhile doing, so we're very grateful to have that opportunity.
1: Uh, something you've mentioned you've noticed is an emerging trend of uh, someone called the revenge shopper. Describe that person. <laughs>
6: Well, it's uh, it's really the people who've been really disappointed not to be able to shop for the last uh, four and a half months, and they really wanted to come out. Some people use the express, expression with a vengeance, um, and we, we saw that, but in a very nice, controlled and measured way. But people were so anxious to get out again. We could see it last week, in fact, when we had the um, shopping by appointment, how keen people were to get appointments in many of the stores, including well-documented uh, Pennies and Zara stores. So they... Some people were out for the vengeance. That was the revenge shopper. But it was, it's meant in a very positive and, uh, and respectful way.
1: But are they spending more than you would usually see? Is that what you're finding?
6: Yeah, we found that last week. I mean, some of our retailers found that the average spend in shopping by appointment is uh, multiplied by a factor of at least three um, on average um, because people were, uh, they had more time. They weren't under uh, specific time pressures. Um, And we found this also in December after uh, lockdown two, where the numbers were back on 2019 in that case, but the average spend was up and a lot of our stores in December hit the, uh, the targets and beat the previous year's figures. But, you know, it it, it is about um, bringing people back on a gradual basis. We expect this to take a little bit of time to build up. Today is probably a little bit artificial because it's the first day back. We don't, um, you know, we're in an industry where complacency doesn't play a part. We have to take each day as it comes. We expect the rest of the week to be to be busy, but not manic, you know, people have, as I say, have been very measured and um, we will find that some people maybe don't want to come back on day one or two. They may leave it a little bit later in the week. What's also helping is the crowd checker that we have on the dundrum.ie website. So people can look at that, find out whether the center is busy, if it's a good time to come. We have several different messages on that giving people some indication of the football trend currently in place in the center. And that's been very, people have engaged very well with that.
1: Are you worried about people who may not come back at all because they've got used to online shopping now? What sort of impact is that having and will have in the future, do you think, Don?
6: Well, you know, over the last number of months, Claire, people had no option. They couldn't travel. The shops weren't open. Online was really the only option for them. But there's a couple of things on that we would we would uh, say. One is that uh, we are, by nature, a social animal. We like to meet people. We like to go out. We like to enjoy the shopping and leisure facilities that places like Dundrum offer. But also um, we find that people like to touch and feel product. You know, the the, the expression on people's faces today when they came in and saw new spring summer merchandise was so refreshing. And it's very hard to uh, to get that sense of, and that experiential sense on on an online experience. You know, and what we did see today, the only kind of negative we saw was the, the volume of online purchases coming back for, Refunds are exchanged because you don't have that problem really when you have it and you can see it and touch it and feel it, you know it's going to okay. fit. But um, I, so I, we don't. I, online is always going to be here. It is uh, something that's very important for our retailers who are op- operating in an omnichannel um, sphere. So um, we think it's 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 going to settle at a certain percentage, but there'll always be room for uh, uh, bricks and mortar shopping.
1: Well, uh, Don Nugent, best wishes for the days, weeks, and months ahead. Thanks for joining us on the Tonight Thank Show. You, good news for shops today. Good news for shopping centres. Um, but it's it's going to be a challenging and a tricky time ahead, isn't it? I mean, that bounce that we saw last year when the shops reopened didn't seem to be as big today.
5: Well, it's only one day. But look, I've no doubt. But
1: it could be an indicator, really, of, of where no, where. I... Pre-
5: no, I don't agree you disagree. with that. Oh, absolutely. We see it in the incomes levels. You know, um, the income tax returns are up in 2019, incomes have stayed up. We've seen nearly 18 billion of kind of forced savings in the economy. If anything's gonna happen here, it's gonna be a deluge on the demand side. And that makes the supply side, you know, having the people in place all the more important. Um, I wouldn't doubt that we'll see a huge demand, but people may be frustrated in this experience economy. You know, people want to find those experiences. They're going to need to be people to serve them. And so we may have some mismatch over the summer. And I think that's something, you know, it's a good problem to have compared to where we've been, but we just need to get that coordination right. And the more slowly we build up and release things back out over the next number of weeks, I think that will really be helpful.
1: There is a challenge, isn't there, with bricks and mortar shops, people are used to Buying in a different way now, going online, purchasing that way. Is there a need necessarily to go to the big shopping centres and hit all the shops when you can do it at the touch of a button? Isn't that a big challenge now?
2: It's a challenge and it was a challenge we were happy in government to support when we couldn't have shops open to support the online trading voucher and encourage so many businesses that never even thought of going online to move online. But it's only one aspect because ultimately as Danny rightly says it's about the experience but crucially if you're buying something that's extremely expensive or you're buying something that's a particular fit you do need that in-store yeah, experience. Well,
1: we have seen plenty of big stores closing We've Debenhams Carrefour, and Warehouse there lately. We're hearing brand names and, and they're crashing they're not surviving.
2: And we are seeing other stores open up and we see decathlon moving over uh, from France to Ireland and seeing the huge opportunities there it's a mixed economy the colour television didn't spell the end of the cinema online trading isn't going to spell the end of the high street or shopping centre experience and it's definitely something as Danny rightly says that when we phase the reopening of society Mm. and the economy that the supports will be there and that the capital that is tied up in the economy can be unleashed in these businesses that that have been closed. Is
1: that firmed up now in terms of supports Um, because we knew they were going to go to the end of June Beyond that, are we going to see the same level of support? Or I know there's much talk about no cliff edge, mm. but they are going to be removed bit by bit, aren't they?
2: Well, hopefully they'll be removed, to be honest, because hopefully we won't need them because we'll have all sectors of the economy open and back, people will be back in. But what the government has said is they're consulting through this process that there won't be a cliff edge. There'll be a more refining and targeting of supports where necessary, and then any major decisions will come in the budget in October.
1: Uh, would you be happy with that? Would your members be happy with that, Danny McCoy?
2: Yeah,
5: I think, look, right throughout, everybody's been learning. We had adaptive learning last year. You know, the government came under pressure of being too slow, but got there in the end. Other jurisdictions made promises and couldn't deliver. So collectively in Ireland, it's been an awful year for everybody, but I think we've all hung together and I think there's good times ahead. And so if we coordinate it and get that kind of messaging right, I think we should have a really strong recovery from what's been a bad year for everybody.
1: Okay, we don't want to go back over, but we were talking about it the other night and the idea that this, pandemic is still very much with us. And this virus is. Um, And with that in mind, there could be a fourth wave. The handbrake may have to be put on the reopening. And in that instance, are we in a position to support businesses for months
3: ahead?
2: The big difference and it's not just for Ireland but it's for the UK, the US and the EU is vaccines. We didn't have vaccines the last time we were reopening society. They are making a massive difference. We they can are see making that a big difference but there's also behaviour
1: isn't there? People's behaviour and, and the variants and the uncertainty that goes and the with the vaccines and
2: is very important to say the vaccines have all been shown to be proven to be uh, able to stand up to any of the variants that are there and this is what the silver bullet is is the vaccines without vaccines we don't get through it and we see surges across the world it's in countries that have had very low vaccine programs we are lucky that we are now in a place where it's going at pace it'll continue to do so and as long as we keep people vaccinated we can keep maintaining the reopening of the economy and crucially society
1: okay. we'll leave it there for now my thanks to Neil Richmond and Danny McCoy who is staying with me and coming up back to the office and what does that look like? back beg. danny mccoy is still here with me and i'm joined by hr consultant caroline reedy from the hr suite uh, caroline i'll come to you first there are renewed calls now as the country starts to reopen when will we get back to work And the calls mainly by employers to get employees back to the office what do you think uh, the future of work looks like following this pandemic Uh,
7: I suppose the last uh, year and a half has springboarded us into a new world of work. Remote working became a crisis response, but it's something I think that's going to be here to stay. I think in time, it's going to be a hybrid model. A lot of employees are anxious to come back to work too. They don't have the right setup at home, maybe. Um, They're in shared accommodation. Uh, For some people, they miss the social connection. Um, But for many, it's brilliant. They don't have the commute. They can have a greater work-life balance. They can maybe balance juggling. Um, So I think we're going to land at a hybrid, but I think we need really good training for managers and really good supports if we want to do it right, rather than just the short-term response. Because the framework needs
1: to be there, doesn't it? I mean, people didn't know in March of last year that when they sat down and pushed aside um, something on the kitchen table to make way for a laptop, that they would still be sitting in that position. more than 15 months from now. How will companies go about that? And do they need extra supports to get there and and get uh, employees on board with this new idea? I
7: think a lot of organisations are already starting the process, Claire, I think the consultation process of employees and involving them in the journey, I think for a lot of people, it'll be individual needs to suit individuals. I think it's going to be a very good retention tool. And the government have started consultation around the remote working uh, strategy. But things like broadband being improved in certain locations, things like ergonomically making sure people have the right work set up and also have the option to still, you know, link in with colleagues. And there's a social connectedness there as well. So there's a lot of ingredients required to make it work well for both the managers, the organisation
1: and the employees. This hybrid model that's being proposed is something really that the country and globally people have been b- bounced into. Would you agree that it's, it's a good plan now?
5: Oh, well, certainly, as Caroline said, it's going to be the future. In fact, the survey we did out today said over three quarters of the employers believe they will be doing hybrid in the future. I guess one of the things is we're reversing out of the kind of emergency measures and the default has now gone to the home for office-based workers anyhow. I would like to see, you know, in reversing out of that, that we default as much back to the option to be there from the past, that you can go to the office and then decide the blend. It's just where the default is at the moment, because for employers, and and IBEC is a relatively big employer as well, trying to coordinate all of this is really difficult. Um, And so, you know, I'm sure we will blend, but what days will people be in? Will they be with the right team when they come in? So there's a lot of factors to be coordinated here. So I think we need to get back first and then determine the future what arrangement. When
1: you say back, are you suggesting that anyone who before now went into an office, come September, should go back to the office and then that their the boss can decide, okay, yeah, you can stay home for a couple of days a week if that suits you, but, you know, right now the default should be to have everyone back in offices well, the de-
5: Well, the default is to stay at home because of a public health crisis we actually haven't come to what does the business need as well as the employees. And I think there's kind of a rush to say, oh, this is the new normal, and the capacity to go back to the office is kind of being diminished. Now, if people truly want that, that would be fine, but you will see people will want to go back to the office. And for employers, there will be double costs here. There'll be the costs of the architecture for home as well as in the office. And if, if, if the trade-off here is about these establishment costs or other types of costs, including wage bill, will come into play.
1: Caroline, do you think that's true? Do you think a lot of people want to go back to the office and because of issues they may be facing at home? Like what challenges are there for people right now? I know it may seem obvious to a lot of people sitting at home saying, yeah. I can tell you exactly what the challenges are, but what are the pertinent ones really that need to be addressed? I think we need clarity
7: from an organisational point of view. What What is the proposal? We obviously don't know the rollout in terms of dates as to what that looks like yet as we move through this return. And I think once we have a bit of clarity on that, that will help. I think we also need a really clear policy to help people be clear. If you want to request a hybrid model or you want to request remote working going forward, What does that look like for you? And I think um, the business needs to decide what do they need? Mm. Because ultimately, it's going to be a big uh, attraction strategy for businesses to offer people the option to work anywhere and be able to be employed in companies um, and maybe come to the office a couple of days a month rather than necessarily be there. So Mm. I think there's a lot of uh, navigating through all of that at the moment and a lot of consultation happening. One of the issues a lot of people
1: have had working from home is switching off and the ability to do that. It's very difficult. They've found that productivity has actually increased when people work from home. The calls never stop and it's, it's hard to balance your life. Absolutely,
7: and we've recently just had the right to disconnect a new code of practice um, introduced, which builds on what's there already with the Organisation Working Time Act to give people that clear responsibility of being able to say, look, we we want you to take your breaks, we want you to not be interrupted in the evenings, and it gives the employer and employees responsibility jointly to make sure that we're all trying to work towards
1: a better work-life balance. Isn't that a problem? Don't employers really need to train up and, and understand the requirements now uh, for their employees and how best to balance their workplace and keep everyone happy and engaged in the job.
5: Indeed and I think a lot of this uh, conversation is about the employer and the employee but the customer is also a significant factor here so we you know there's, there's a lot of parts to be coordinated here. What
1: issues do you think what challenges have been been faced by people working remotely in 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 terms of customer service you mentioned well
5: well it depends on the stage that they're at as well obviously new people to organizations won't have had the capacity to actually build up a kind of a team spirit or know how things are done in an organization and i think that's you know that we've found for the last year there has been quite a lot of churn in the labor market we were talking about earlier on about people perhaps leaving one sector going into another there is hiring going on so there's quite a lot of new people there there's a lot of you know, people haven't even met uh, physically, so these are these are going to be coordination problems. And I think the future will be different, but there is a there's a part here about where we go back from the crisis, and we need some stability. And the stability, I think, comes from the supply side. In other words, what's provided in terms of where you do it. The office is the is the existing investment that people have made. You know, we've talked about cyber security issues around that take place when it's, it's dismediated to the house. We've also seen the issues that Karen has talked about, the right to disconnect. Uh, working time directives, all of these coordinations will become big issues very soon.
1: This churn that Danny mentioned, churn being, obviously, people leaving a job, finding another, not staying long at the company, is part of that link to a lack of engagement, say, with regard to pay negotiations or, you know, consulting with their employer about problems they may be having around communication on the job in this new world? I think a
7: lot of managers, for them, this is something that they aren't trained in. Dealing and managing with somebody who's working remotely versus somebody who is in an office is a whole new ball game. So I think training the managers and also working on making sure the culture is, you know, sifting through through the remote barriers is a, a difficult challenge
1: for everybody to navigate at the moment. Caroline, Danny, thank you both. And that is all from us. Our programme is available as a podcast. And the next news here is on Ireland AM in the morning from all the Tonight Show team. Take care. Good night.
0: This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series.
5: ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend.